could be seated. Well, look at us. One big, happy family crowded around, uh, yeah, celebrate that. I was going to say crowded around one big kitchen table uh, for a spiritual meal. I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want first? Whenever you're asked that, don't you always say, give me the bad news first and then the good news. I don't know what kind of insane people reverse that and choose good news first and end with bad news. Well, our passage today in the second half of Genesis 3 has a lot of bad news and some really good news too. But we have to fully grasp the bad news before we can be fully ready and appreciate the good news. Last week, we saw the very bad news of sin entering humanity in the first half of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were led astray by the serpent, and they partook of the fruit that God forbid them from eating. It wasn't an arbitrary, petty rule that God made. Their move, their sin, wasn't merely a mistake, a, a misstep, a minor rule violation. It was rebellion against God. It was cosmic treason. It was the deifying of the human self. It was joining with Satan in his rebellion against the maker. As Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner put it, so simple the act, so hard its undoing. And further adding to the bad news of what we saw last week, remember in verses 7 to 13, there were immediate consequences from that first sin. There was the experience of guilt followed by shame and embarrassment. There was the pathetic instinct to cover up. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God as if they could. God came a calling, calling them to account. And remember, the man blamed the woman and then blamed God for giving her to him. The woman blamed the serpent. It is all very bad. And in many ways, what comes next takes us from bad to worse. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. Read on with me if you have a Bible, or you can follow along on the screens. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, we said last week, just from the first half of chapter 3, that the fall explains what's wrong with this world. It explains why we sin and why we're sinned against. It explains why we find it hard to get along with each other. It explains why God seems distant to many of us and why all of us, to varying degrees and in different forms, feel feelings of guilt and shame and fear. The fall is what's wrong with the world and wrong with me and what's wrong with you. But our passage this week adds to that thesis and adds to the bad news. It's not just that we have gone against God. It's not just that now we are sometimes against each other. It is also that God has now, since sin has entered the world, he has gone against us. He is against us. Is that putting it too strongly? Isn't that what our passage says? Isn't that what you know this rough and tumble world to be? Cursed. A good world, yes. But a fallen world, indeed. A cursed world, according to God's word. Dave Helm and John Dennis, in their little book on Genesis, they say, only a cursing God makes sense of the world. Without such curses, we most certainly would have by now built our new Jerusalem. Something or someone is thwarting our efforts. Doesn't it seem that way to you? A cursing God is precisely what Genesis proclaims, say Hellman Dennis. Again, we need to fully grasp the bad news before we can really be ready for the good news. In our passage, in our passage, the good news is scattered here and there. It's sprinkled in here or there amidst a lot of bad news throughout. So what I'd like to do for us this morning is to pull out the bad news first, and then we'll have better opportunity to lock on to the good news after. So I have four points, if you're a note taker. The first three are words of judgment or curse or difficulty. And then with the last point, we'll go looking for the glimmers of hope that we find in the passage. But first, let's think about the curse of the serpent. The curse of the serpent. God rightly begins his words of judgment with the creature that initiated it all, the serpent. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all your days. This refers to his humiliation We shouldn't assume that before the curse, all serpents had legs. More likely, serpents crawled on their bellies before the fall and after the fall. But now, according to verse 14, their belly-crawling ways have new significance. Much like in Genesis 9, when after the flood... Rainbows have new significance, though rainbows probably existed before the flood. So after the curse, the serpent's 
belly-crawling, dust-eating ways should remind us of the fall and should remind us of Satan's curse and his humiliation and his eventual defeat with a divine sentence Not a dialogue with the serpent, notice that. Not an investigation of the serpent or a trial of the serpent. No, God just speaks. He speaks truth. And he curses the serpent, designating the creature now as the lowliest of the creatures. So we should should be reminded of these realities every time we see a snake. And the Israelites certainly needed to be reminded of that. Remember that Genesis had as its first audience those Israelites who had come out of Egypt. They had grown up in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh's cruel tyranny. And they would have seen countless times The cobra as that image and symbol of power and deity in Egypt. But God's curse upon and humiliation of the serpent has final definitive say. Even if a final defeat isn't immediate, as the next sentence makes clear that it's not immediate. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, offspring, or sometimes translated seed, can either be plural or singular. It's singular here, but it can be a, what's called a singular collective, a group of people, a group of things. It's like a, a bag of seed. You say, I've got my seed even though there are a bunch of seeds in your bag, we'll eventually see that verse 15 has both of these in mind, singular and collective. But for now, just think offspring in terms of many, plural, a group. In fact, there are two groups. Do you see that? There are two offsprings being referred to here. There's the offspring of the serpent and then the offspring of the woman. All humanity is divided into these two. Those who will fear God and those who will go against God. And it's only a chapter later in Genesis that we see those dynamics play out in the very next generation between two brothers, Cain and Abel. One brother is godly, on the Lord's side, doing the right thing. But the other is resentful and sneaky and murderous, just like his father, the devil. Which might remind us of John 8, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and they pride themselves on being sons of Abraham. And in John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. No surprise that the Pharisees at this point were seeking to kill Jesus. And we see the same dynamics play out In Revelation 12, a passage with apocalyptic, symbolic visions to it, and it says that John, the revelator, saw a woman clothed with the sun. She was pregnant, and she was carrying out the birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared. Behold, a great red dragon. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And then there are several verses about a chase and God's protection of the woman and her child. 
and the dragon being thwarted. And then we read, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, the church. So Christian, be reminded that there is still a spiritual battle going on. And it's as old as the hills. It goes back to the garden. But that same serpent, Satan, is still active and busy. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We shouldn't be surprised when it feels like we as Christians are being hunted, targeted, opposed, hindered, hated, and those things simply for being Christians. Who is on the Lord's side? Well, that's the curse of the serpent. Secondly, think with me on the difficulties for the woman and the man. The difficulties for the woman and the man. And this point of our four will take the longest. There's a lot going on. Now notice that I've called these difficulties and not curses. I don't think it's nitpicky to notice that technically, you see verse 14, it says the serpent is cursed. And if you look down to verse 17, you'll see that the ground is cursed. But it doesn't say that Adam and Eve were cursed. Not explicitly. The word curse isn't used for them. Of course, they will face new difficulties this side of sin. That's what's coming. They indeed will feel the effects of the curse in this world as the opposition of Satan and as those who experience the cursed dirt of the earth. But they are not under a curse. And just that's a small signal of hope. Satan is cursed. The ground is cursed. Cain, in the next chapter, will be explicitly cursed by God. But Adam and Eve will graciously only face difficulties in light of their sin. You'll notice as well in this outline that I'm treating the women, the woman, and the man together. And you might notice that Eve is addressed separately in verse 16 from Adam, her husband, in verses 17 to 19. Normally, I would really want to take that at its face value and make these separate ideas and thoughts. And yet, the more I looked at it this week... I would think that what is said to the man and the woman is actually less gender-specific than we might at first think. Though God speaks to them one at a time, and no surprise, they sinned one at a time. They sinned, each bearing their own responsibility. But he speaks to them one at a time, and yet what he says to the one quickly relates to the other. Even with this first difficulty in verse 16, here's the first of four different kinds of difficulties we find in verses 16 to 19. I'd actually call it the pain of child rearing. Rearing. I know it says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That might sure sound like it's uniquely reserved for women who uniquely give birth to kids. But actually, childbearing may not be the best translation of the Hebrew here. It's actually the word for conception. So what's painful about conception? Well, nothing necessarily. Likely, conception is symbolic for the whole child-having, child-bearing, child-rearing package. And further adding to that broader interpretation is that that word for pain in verse 16 
is not the typical word for physical pain. It's the word for emotional pain, anguish, grief, anxiety. I think it's referring to the whole package of child rearing from preconception to pregnancy to delivery. Yes, that's in there. But then also raising those little precarious creatures who don't stay little very long. So if you've ever raised a child... If you've ever been stressed at any point in those teenage years, can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> if you've ever wrestled wiggly toddlers praying that God would one day save their little hearts, if you have given birth to a baby before, or if you've been pregnant, and lost a child. And if you have ever wanted to be pregnant and haven't gotten pregnant yet, this verse is speaking to your experience, all of the above. It's not limited to a two-hour or 12-hour block of delivery of course, it is undeniably directed to a woman. Women often deal with the lion's share of bearing and raising children, but it's not limited to moms and not limited to childbearing. Mom and dads both know something of the anguish and worry and grief that comes with the potential of having children and the project of taking care of those children. And the anxiety involved in that is a reflection of our fallen, cursed world. We feel it. If you're a parent, you feel it daily, sometimes hour by hour. And if you long to be a parent, I know, you feel it. God has made this world a rough and tumble one this side of the fall so that we would know that something has gone majorly wrong and it's affecting us all. Then there's the difficulty of marital conflict in the second half of verse 16. It says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Well, that little sentence has perplexed Bible scholars a whole lot over the years. But I think most scholars would agree that we get a little interpretive clue about what this verse means from a verse in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Just picking up in the middle of verse 7 where God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Several words are in common there with chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 16. In chapter 4, verse 7, sin desires to conquer Cain, to go against Cain, and so he must rule over it. And so Genesis three sixteen seems to be saying something like, the woman desires to go against her husband, and so he responds to that, not as he should, but nevertheless, he responds to that with power, with control, with rule, sometimes with force. This means that the role relationships of husbands and wives, though they were perfect in their harmony and complementarity before the fall, they are now on this side of the fall experiencing the battle of the sexes. And if someone were to say, ha, there is no battle of the sexes in our home because she always wins. 
I would say that's exactly what this verse is talking about, at least one side of the equation. And if someone else would say, are you kidding? There is no pushing back on my husband. He at sometimes will even get physical. So I don't, I don't even push at all. Well, that's exactly what this verse is talking about. And then many others of us can just concede the point. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, can, I can see that even in decent marriages that there is a push and a pull that's often going on. And hopefully we're growing in sacrifice and compromise and love for each other and meeting needs, but we're, we certainly know about a desire to win, getting our own way, Controlling the situation, maybe even manipulating. You might say, yeah, sometimes we raise our voices. Sometimes we play mind games with each other. Sometimes we barter with each other. But yeah, I see Genesis 3.16 sometimes pop up in our own home. So here's one way to paraphrase this difficult verse. Marriage is hard between two sinners. Marriage is hard. Again, before the fall, it apparently wasn't the, quite the same amount of work and, and effort. There was apparently no struggle in this beautiful complementarity in love for each other and this one fleshness. Why should there have been any struggle before sin. There was no sin. There's no problem. Adam and Eve were a perfectly partnered pair. They were made for each other. They were made to go together. They were like opposites, like puzzle pieces fit. But we saw last week how their roles and how their unity unraveled at that moment of temptation and sin and slightly after. And remember, Adam was there, but did nothing and said nothing while his wife was led astray by the serpent. Remember that after their sin, they experienced guilt and shame and hiding. And when God came a-calling, they went a-blaming. So is it really a surprise that as a consequence of that sin that God would give them over to more of it? The relational dysfunction that started in the garden today is like an earthquake that still tremors and tremors in every living room, in every home, all through the ages. Marriage is hard because it's two sinners coming together as one, and our sin nature resists deferring to another. God has made this fallen world a bent and broken one. Even in the most fundamental and intimate of relationships, so that we would know Something is wrong in this world. And it has been from the beginning. A third difficulty is that work is difficult. Verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Now work existed before the fall, but work apparently got much harder after the fall. Before the fall, in the plush garden, we can imagine that fruit was always low-hanging and always perfectly ripe. No weeds, no dry season, no parched ground or withered leaves. But since the fall, there are thorns and thistles and weeds and goat heads. 
goat heads. There's no way goat heads were in the garden before the fall. They look like little devils, and they sure feel like little devils when you step on them. Before the fall, all creation worked in harmony. And then after the fall, parts of creation are actually working against other parts of creation. And the weeds usually win. It's insane. You want this thing to grow, and so you care for it, and you prune it, and you put it in this spot to get that sun. You water it. You put some soil down. You better soil. You put some some extra ingredients down. I don't even know what the ingredients are. My wife does that stuff. That's all to grow the things you want to grow, and then here comes this crazy weed up from the crack, not in soil. What is it doing? Who watered this? Who put it there? It's out of control. It's winning. Yeah, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat. So it's not merely about your suburban lawn care, nor is it merely about farming. It's about hard work in general. I've said many times before that any home project requires at least three trips to Lowe's before you're really getting going. You thought it was one, and then you got the wrong size. You're going back. You, you thought you could do it in two, but somehow the kids have misplaced the channel lockers once again, and you got to go buy another pair. Work is hard all over the place. Home projects, farming, and whatever you do. Files go missing. Hard drives crash. Numbers don't add up. Communication can be confusing and hard. Kids make messes and mess themselves. Never mind just losing focus or the boss being a jerk or your coworkers being annoying. Work is hard. And there is a time to say, work is good. You've been made in the image of God. You've been created to do what God does. Organize, structure, create, subdue chaos, bring order. There's a time to say all that. And we did from Genesis 1 and 2. But now from Genesis 3, it's appropriate for us to lean into this. That work is stinking hard. And it's often annoying. And it seems futile. And just like there is a time to speak of the goodness and order and beauty and majesty of God's creation. So there's also another time to speak of the fact that this world is under a curse and there are cataclysmic upheavals going on on this planet. Earthquakes and fires and destructive storms Romans 8 says that creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. God has made this fallen world a difficult one through and through. And he's made it that way so that you would know that something has gone majorly wrong. He made it this way so that you would find it inescapable. That this world is broken and life is hard. Cornelius Plantiga, in his book just called Sin, it's a book on sin. What would, you, what would you title a book on sin? Cornelius Plantiga titled his, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. We should feel that. And death is certain. Verse 19, the second half of verse 19. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God said, when you eat of the tree, you shall surely, what? 
die. Death is coming for Adam and Eve. The day that they partook of that forbidden fruit, they died spiritually and they began to die physically. God mercifully gave them more time, but the clock is ticking. And ever since then, death has permeated this world. It has tyranny and universality in this world. We try to escape thinking about death, especially our own. We whitewash and hide the ugliness of death as much as we can in our culture. But it is inescapable. And it is universal. It is final. And it is ugly. And it is just the wages of sin is death. And so we die. And that you and I are here right now with breath in our lungs is a gift from God that we don't deserve and we don't know how long we have. God has placed us, his fallen, rebellious creatures, under a sentence of death. Why? Well, because he's just, because he's a God of his word, and because sin is that heinous and seriousness, serious, and God wants us to know and feel that sin is heinous, and his word is sure, and therefore we're all under a sentence of death. And now we come to the final piece of bad news, perhaps the most severe yet, even worse than death itself. Number three of our main points, the banishment from the garden. Look at verse 22. We'll come back to some other verses in a bit. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, angels, with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The garden was not only Adam and Eve's abode, it was also God's abode. We've been talking about how the garden was like a, a temple-like garden. It had holy intentions, not just beautiful and lovely ones. It was a place of God's abundant provision in Adam and Eve's pleasure, yes, but it was also a place of God's presence and his worship, like a temple. But now they are cast out. Sin has not only had painful consequences in their relationship with each other, in their relationship to the serpent, in their relationship to God, but it has also cost them something of the presence of God. God's presence for Adam and Eve would never be the same as it was in the garden before sin. And this is our biggest problem. Separation from God. It's a bigger problem than death. Marital problems the anxiety of raising kids or being on the run from the devil, our biggest problem is that sin separates us from God. Well, have you had enough of the bad news yet? I have. So I'm done with the bad news. Life's hard, that's the point. And God intended it that way, this side of the fall, because of sin. But God is good. So fourthly, consider with me the glimmers of hope. 
the glimmers of hope. There have been glimmers of hope even nestled in these curses we've been looking at, like the fact that Satan is cursed or that children are still coming. Verse 20, Eve was so named by her husband because she'll be the mother of all living. Wow, God's grace. Life will go on. But there are two glimmers of hope that are more explicit than those, and they will take us all over the Bible. Notice verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember those fig leaves? Hastily constructed to cover their nakedness back in verse 7. Well, Adam and Eve, yes, were naked and, and rightly ashamed and did feel guilt and apparently their instinct to cover up wasn't all wrong. So God covers them up. Now with something more permanent than fig leaves. He could have provided for them a nice cotton jumpsuit. They hadn't even seen those yet, but we know about them, right? He could have provided for them something synthetic, that we don't even know about yet. We haven't even invented it yet. Imagine, what if clothes got any comfier than they are right now? What would we do? Just drool? <laughs> God could have covered them with anything, but he chose to cover them with the skins of slain animals. Why? I think this seems to be a prototypical substitutionary sacrifice. The death of the animal provided the covering Adam and Eve needed for their nakedness. And this, as, remember, God sent them out from the garden, from his presence. So now the themes of God's presence and sacrifice come together as the story of the Bible unfolds. Just say the next book, the book of Exodus. How do the themes of presence of God and the sacrifices to God come together in the tabernacle? Well, they do indeed, don't they? The tabernacle, remember, was to be God's abode in the midst of the traveling people. And yet there was no welcome mat in front of that innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle. No, that was God's throne room. And no one was to enter that room except only the high priest and only once a year with sacrifice for the people. In fact, there was a massive curtain that blocked off the Holy of Holies God's throne room from everything else at the tabernacle and later the temple. And do you know that the craftsmen constructing the tabernacle and later the temple were told by God to put on this curtain what image? Cherubim. Angels. Those creatures who were assigned to guard from re-entry into the garden. So the, the tabernacle and later the temple was both green light and red light. Green light, God is in the midst of his people. Red light, you cannot come in here. He is holy and you are not. And then we come to the New Testament. And we're just fast forward in a bunch here, aren't we? But, but let's just get to it. Let's cut to the chase. Jesus hangs on a cross making sacrifice for sins and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Access to God has now been provided in Jesus. The old sacrifices couldn't do that. They only provided a temporary kind of presence of God in the midst of his people. Red light, green light. Welcome at and stop sign. 
But then Jesus dies and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Read about it in Luke 23. And read just a few verses before when Jesus interacts with that man, that thief on the cross. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. He's taken us back, but not really. He's taken us beyond to something better. He did that all through his sacrifice, and we know it to be successful because of his resurrection. All this and more foreshadowed back in Genesis 3, verse 21. But but how about that verse 15? If you're a careful Bible reader, you know I've been keeping this in my back pocket. I only read and we only talked about the first half of verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Remember, offspring can be plural or singular. It's plural-ish in the first half, offspring in general of the woman and the serpent. Now in the second half, it gets specific, and it's singular. He, his, you. This refers to a singular seed of the woman who will one day come and deal a blow to the head of the serpent. And yes, the serpent will strike at the seed of the woman. You shall bruise his heel. But that won't be a decisive, victorious blow to the seed of the woman. Oh, it's like a a crucifixion that ends in resurrection. Let's just say that. But the blow to the serpent's head will be a crushing blow. And that's what Jesus came to do. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so that theme of seed and defeat, this idea of one to come, is just strung all through the Old Testament like gorgeous dangling pearls. The seed of the woman is the first one. But soon in Genesis, we'll read of the seed of Abraham. Later in Genesis, we'll read about a ruler that's coming from the line of Judah. In Numbers, we hear about a star that's coming out of the line of Jacob that will crush God's enemies. In Deuteronomy, we read of a prophet to come who's like Moses but better. On and on it goes. A king of Israel who's coming, the Messiah, the anointed one. Isaiah 7 says it's a son born of a virgin who's called Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what the angel told Mary in Matthew 1. Call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The angel said all this took place to fulfill what Isaiah said long ago. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. All the themes of the Bible are like tributaries that flow into this mighty roaring river called Jesus. The Bible is a tapestry. And if we had the time, we would chase down how the curse was born at the cross by Jesus for us so that we don't bear the curse ultimately. Or how Christ eventually fully overturns the curse in a new heaven and a new earth to come. Or how Romans 8 spoke of creation groaning, but groaning in hope waiting for the day when Christ comes and fully saves us. Or how his death has brought about the final 
defeat of death, at least in principle, in one day in actuality. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And so I ask you today, have you believed this? Have you believed him? Have you put your trust in what he did? The Bible holds out to you a pretty good explanation for this broken, messed up world that you experience. It tells you why you don't do the things you want to do. It tells you why you've been wronged so many times. And the Bible not only tells you what's wrong with the world, it tells you where your hope lies in this one, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, the king, the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega. Brothers and sisters, Satan crushing work still goes on. And get this, it actually extends now to those who follow Jesus. Did you hear that read earlier, Romans 16? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And one day, Jesus will throw that serpent finally in the abyss forever and ever. He will be crushed. Sin will be done away with. In death will be no more. So yes, life now is hard. It's a fallen world. We're under a curse. And God made it that way so that we would know that something has gone wrong from the very beginning. But God is good and he is making all things new in Jesus. Look to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your marvelous word. Thank you for its intricacies and for your glorious plan. And once again, we stand in awe of your patience and goodness and mercy and love. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. He is our rock. And we stand on him today. We find refuge in him afresh today. Naked we come to him for dress. Help us to sing of that now to your glory and for our good. Amen.